God wants his people to think of this day as something that's not burdensome, but in fact, something that's the opposite. He wants his people to think of this day as a delight. tracking through this section in which there's these five conflicts, these five arguments, these five disputes that they bring to Jesus, all of them having to do with their understanding of how Jesus has, in their view, violated the ritual law. And so we're going to look at the last two objections brought to Jesus because all of these, these serve as the climax. These are the climactical objections that they will have to Jesus because these objections are all centered upon the Sabbath. So that'll be the topic of our conversation this morning. We will look to the passage in just a few minutes, and we'll be talking this morning about the Sabbath. So with that being said, let's read our text. And then having read our text, we'll begin. So from verse 23, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made, his, as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So our passage this morning is centered around these two conflicts that are coming from the Sabbath, or rather, more specifically, the Pharisees' understanding, the scribes and Pharisees, their understanding that Jesus is in violation of the Sabbath laws. So that'll be the topic this morning that we turn to this this idea of the Sabbath. Now, when we turn to the topic of the Sabbath, I have found that I don't believe that there is a single doctrine in the life of the church or the experience of the church that is more misunderstood or at least has less certainty than how the Christian is to view this thing known as the Sabbath. Even the word can be intimidating for us. Many people think the word means seven or has something to do with seven because Sabbath is the seventh day. But the word itself just simply means rest. And so Sabbath is speaking to us of a day of rest. So we'll be talking this morning about this day of rest that comes to us in the pages of the Old Testament and then is now the center of, of this episode of conflict here in the New Testament. And as we talk about that this morning, I find that there is, again, not only so much understanding or lack of certainty about how the Christian is to view the Sabbath. I mean, what are we to do on, on Sunday? Why is it even Sunday and not Saturday? I mean, it used to be Saturday. Why is it now Sunday? And who changed it? And why did we change it? 
And what are we to do and what are we to not do? Is this a generational sort of thing? Because generations prior to us viewed the Lord's Day in very different ways than which the Lord's Day is viewed today. So who is correct? We look around at the society around us and, and we don't have to think back very far. We can look to times gone by and maybe... 125 or 150 years ago or 175 years ago. And we can read things written by people who were observing the culture. And we can see so very clearly that the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, was regarded in a much different way than it is today. I'm thinking what comes to my mind are the stories of uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder. Remember the Little House on the Prairie books? I think it was the Little House in the Big Woods that describes their Sabbath experience when, when they were kids. And they would all day, the only thing that they would eat would be cold leftovers. Nothing would be prepared. And then they would go to service. They would come back from service. And the entire day was spent sitting and reading the Scriptures. They didn't even talk. And you dare not crack a smile or tell a joke or laugh or anything like that. And the kids would sit in these straight back wooden benches and they could read the Scriptures until the sun went down and then you could talk. How different is that from our Sabbath or our Lord's Day experience of today in which so many Christians really treat this one day in no way that's substantially different than any other day of the week. And who is right? Is this a matter of Christians today putting away some legalism from the past and, and embracing freedom in Christ? Or is this a matter of Christians just becoming more like the world today? How are we to think of the Christian Sabbath today? Now, this is something that as we look at this morning, we're going to be challenged to think of this through a biblical lens and not through a cultural or traditional lens. What do the scriptures show us about how the Christian, how the new covenant saint is to think of the Lord's day or this day of rest? So as we think about this this morning, we are talking about not just a command from the Lord. We all know that the Sabbath, to keep the Sabbath is the fourth commandment, right? So we think about the Sabbath command and we might be tempted to think of the Sabbath command as just one of the Ten Commandments. It's just 10% of God's law. But what I want us to see, at least to begin to see, we've read our text, we'll begin looking at the text closely in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to just think about this thing called the Sabbath. And I want to, first of all, just sort of clarify some terms. We already talked about the word Sabbath itself. And and that's not a word for us to be intimidated by. It just means rest. So we talk about Sabbath in terms of day of rest. But I also want to think this morning about two different Sabbaths or two different Sabbath experiences. One I'll call the Mosaic Sabbath. That just means the Sabbath that was observed under the Old Covenant, under the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Sabbath. The experience of the Mosaic Sabbath was quite different from the experience of what we will call the Christian Sabbath or the New Covenant Sabbath, the Sabbath, the, the day of rest in which we are experiencing right now. So as we think about these two experiences of the Sabbath, that we're again tempted to think of them just in terms of one of the Ten Commandments. All the Ten Commandments are obviously very important, but this is only 10% of the commandments of God's law. But what we'll see very soon here is that we should think of the Sabbath the command to keep and honor the Sabbath as something much more than just one of the commands. In fact, what we will see is that the command to keep the Sabbath in some ways could be thought of as the central command. We know that the first command to honor the Lord your God and have no gods before Him, we know that nothing can supersede that in importance. But in a real sense, the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath holy, is in a way 
above the others in terms of significance, importance, and impact upon the life of the observer of the Mosaic law and now the new covenant saint. So all of God's commands are significant, right? I think right now of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 19 from the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says that anyone who relaxes any of my commandments, even the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, it would be he would be called the least in the kingdom of God, right? That's a very stern, dire warning. Anyone who takes any of the commandments, even the least of the commandments, and relaxes them and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. I don't want to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And I don't think Jesus meant that in terms of, well, at least you got in. I think he meant that in terms of, this is not something you want. You do not want to enter into eternity being thought of as the least in the kingdom of heaven. And you don't want to do that because you don't want to be one who relaxes any of my commands and teaches others to do the same. So this is something that we need to make certain that we get right. And we need to make certain that we are properly understanding what God is saying to the new covenant saint in terms of that one day of seven, how we are to treat that one day, how we're to not treat it. So the command to keep the Sabbath not only is often, I think, very misunderstood, and and oftentimes Christians have such a low degree of certainty with what really the commandment is about today. Not only that, but also I find that this is, I don't know, quite frankly, I don't know of another doctrine of the church that's more difficult to preach or teach, or for that matter, just to really get your arms around it to make sure that you yourself have it. I don't know of another doctrine in the life of the church that matches the doctrine of the Sabbath, particularly the Christian Sabbath, in terms of just just something that's not intuitive to get your arms around. I don't know of anything that matches it. So this, this is a rather difficult doctrine. And as we said, it's a rather important doctrine. And it's one that comes to us, we know, from the Mosaic Law. But, but let's just start by thinking of the origin of the Sabbath. How did the Sabbath begin? The Sabbath actually began far before the Mosaic law was given. The Sabbath began at creation. We see from Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, for example, on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So on the seventh day, God rested or God Sabbathed on the seventh day. So from the very beginning of creation, before marriage was given to culture, before Anything else other than the creation itself was existing, God instituted this seventh day of rest, this seventh day and this period of seven. And God divided the time periods up into periods of sevens. And so there's this cycle of six and one and six and one. And God established that from the very beginning. And what's interesting to see is how pervasive that pattern of six and one has made itself to be in all of humanity. I don't know of a single culture, whether a developed culture or an undeveloped culture, that has a cycle of time other than sevens. That cycle of sevens, six and one, six and one, seems to pervade every culture. I know that there was a period of time uh, after the French Revolution when the secular French people wanted to rid themselves of anything Christian, and so they initiated a 10-day work week. It didn't last. Because humanity, it's almost like God baked it into the cake for us to think in terms of six and one and six and one. 
So this is what God instituted from the very beginning. We can even see this cycle of six and one in the lives of Cain and Abel and as they bring their sacrifices and whatnot. But then, of course, the command itself comes, per se, much later as Moses gives the Mosaic law. And so then we begin to think, well, okay, this is commandment number four. Keep the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath, do no work on the Sabbath, and keep the Sabbath holy. We know the command. But as we think about this command, it's, it's, it's going to be self-evident. As we think just a little bit about the fourth commandment, it's going to be very self-evident that the fourth command is not like the other nine. The fourth commandment stands out above the rest of the commandments in some ways that really just make it pop off the page at you. So for the first, first thing, the fourth commandment is very much longer than any of the other commandments. All the other commandments are oftentimes one short phrase, one short, one short sentence. You, you shall uh, not steal, shall not murder. Now, just short little phrases, maybe two short little phrases. But the fourth commandment is nearly a paragraph. It's almost like a short discourse that God is giving when He gives the fourth commandment. Furthermore, the fourth commandment is the only commandment that God gives in which He gives a foundation for it, a reason for it. The other commandments, you shall not steal, you shall not murder. God just simply states these. But with the fourth commandment, God says he, he institutes it. He grounds it in what we saw back in Genesis chapter 2. He grounds it in creation. He says, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. You shall do no work on the Sabbath. For the Lord your God created the heavens and earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, you are to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. So he tells us in the giving of the command what the command is based upon. It's based upon creation. No other commandment is given that's based upon creation. Furthermore, when we look at the re-giving of the Ten Commandments, because we all know that the, command, the Ten Commandments were given twice. So they're given in Exodus 20. They're given again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. When they're given again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Fourth Commandment is the only one that comes to us with additional information. So the fourth commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 5 also is this long explanation, almost like a short paragraph compared to the other commandments. But in this instance, God now changes the reasoning. The reasoning that was given in Exodus 20 is the reason of creation. God created the heavens and earth in six days and rested on the seventh. When He gives the fourth commandment the second time, He grounds it in the Exodus event, the freeing of God's people from slavery in Egypt. Honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. You shall do all your work on six days. You shall not work on the seventh day. For the Lord your God delivered you. You are to remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God delivered you from slavery. Therefore, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. So these dual groundings, these dual foundations, no other commandment is given any foundation except for this one. And it's now actually given two groundings. Two, two, one of them is the grounding of creation itself thereby telling us that this commandment of the Sabbath is something that in some way not only applies just to God's people, but God has made humanity. He has created His, His creation to exist in this pattern of six and one, six and one. Furthermore, we find that God seems to treat this commandment with the utmost severity because He tells us the punishment for violating this command, we're told a little bit later in Exodus, would be, in Exodus chapter 31, verse 15, would be death. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. That's taking the commandment quite seriously. Do no work on the Sabbath. 
For the one who does do work on the Sabbath, death results from that. So God takes the command quite seriously. If we were to look to the prophet Ezekiel or the prophet Isaiah, but particularly the prophet Ezekiel, if we were to look at Ezekiel, we would see that Ezekiel, many, many generations later, will actually cite the profaning of the Sabbath as the primary reason for the exile because God's people profaned the Sabbath and didn't keep the Sabbath. So God seems to take this quite quite seriously indeed. We also are given some information about the purpose of the Sabbath. So we see in Exodus chapter 31 and verse 17, God says this. He says, this, this Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. And here's the sign that in six days, the Lord made heavens and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. So God actually goes so far as to say, this is the sign. This is the sign between me and my people. And the sign between me and my people, let's not miss this, is the command to do what? Nothing. Rest, not work. You see how it stands apart from the other commandments? You shall not commit adultery. You shall be faithful to your spouse. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And then here comes the fourth commandment. Don't work. Isn't that odd? Doesn't that just scream to you that there's something very different about this fourth commandment than any of the other commandments? That this is a command. This is, in essence, this is a command to be blessed. This is a command to not work. This is a command to at least not do any ordinary work on this one day. But the command is twofold. The command is not just do no work or at least no ordinary work. Don't do the same work that you do the other six days on this day is what God's saying. But the command is also coupled together with the other side, which is to say, honor the Lord, keep the Lord, keep the Sabbath, honor the Lord on this day. So it's a commandment to refrain from normal work coupled together with the commandment to honor the Lord or worship the Lord in your heart. And God says, this blessing that I give to you, this gift is my sign of our covenant to one another. God gives other signs of covenants, circumcision or or the bow in the sky. But this is the sign that God gives to his people to be the covenant between them. Do you know that all religions have holy things. We know that. I mean, that's, that's intuitive, that all religions have holy things about them. But all religions tend to gravitate towards holy places. You know this to be true. The Muslims gravitate toward Mecca. The uh, Hindus, they look to the Ganges River and revere that as holy. If you know anything about Hinduism, then you know about the Ganges River. Or Shintoism or Confucianism, they all look at the island of Japan as as the holy place. And indeed, Judaism also will, in a sense, look to Jerusalem as the holy city. In particular, the temple, which of course is not there now, but the temple as a a location, as a place of holiness. So, So it is true that Judaism has a place of holiness. But far and away above the veneration of Jerusalem or the temple... For Judaism is not so much a holy place as a holy time. No other religion is like that, in which they venerate a time as a holy time. And that is said to be their sign. Their covenant sign is this period of time known as Sabbath, day of rest, that 
serves as the covenant between them and their God. So are you beginning to kind of get the idea of just how important this command is and how this command really doesn't have a parallel to it in the rest of God's commands? Now, let's look back again at Exodus 31 and verse 17. I want us to see something. We'll bring this back up a little bit later. But it's fascinating to me. Verse 17, It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. Now that word refreshed comes from the word breathe. So we could translate it very literally as God caught His breath. That's a literal valid translation that in six days God made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day God caught His breath. So it's a good translation, was was refreshed, but very literally, God's saying, on that day, I caught my breath. On that day, I took a breath. And so therefore, I want you to keep this day holy. I want you to honor this day. I want you to refrain from regular work on this day because this is the day in which I caught my breath. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But we see that in Exodus, I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 13, here's what the way God wants his people to think of this Sabbath. He says, you shall call the Sabbath a delight. God wants his people to think of this day as something that's not burdensome, but in fact, something that's the opposite, the polar opposite of burdensome. He wants his people to think of this day as a delight. The sign between God and his people is this day, And he wants his people to think of this day as the day in which he caught his breath, and they see that as delight. 